2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes, as he's carried along by the Spirit, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also, notice, overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. One of the most notorious bank robbers in history, Willie Sutton, was once asked about why he robbed banks. And he responded, because that's where the money is. Why else would you rob a bank? The love of money, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, is the root of all kinds of evil. In fact, it's even been said that every time you loan money to a friend, you damage his memory. That'll sink in in a moment. It isn't, of course, money itself that is evil, church. Something wrong with money. Rather, it's the moral depravity of the human heart coupled with what money promises. At least, again, coupled with the moral depravity of the human heart, it promises comfort, it promises ease, it promises prestige, it promises status. And this combination often produces frightful and blasphemous results for humanity. Some of the worst crimes in human history were committed as a result of love for money. On the other hand, the person who knows and treasures Jesus Christ is to have money and approach money and to spend money and to give money differently from those who don't know and treasure Christ. There is a Christian, a distinctively Christian approach to possessing, gaining, giving, spending, and saving money. One of the ways we are to use our money is by giving it away as an act of worship to God, as an act of worship to Jesus Christ, as an act of service to the body of Christ and to others beyond the body of Christ. Well, this morning, 
little background for you. This morning is the second part of a two-part sermon series on Christian giving. And it actually occurs within the broader sermon series, expositional sermon series in Deuteronomy. Well, why in the world, if we have been in Deuteronomy, are we in 2 Corinthians? Well, there are a couple of reasons for that, not the least of which is all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So that includes 2 Corinthians and Deuteronomy. And we ought to be able to toggle back and forth even seamlessly as we preach through these texts. But another reason is last Lord's Day, we began by unpacking Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 29, where Moses instructs the people of Israel to give tithes as an act of worship. In particular, as we're going to see in review, I think, I propose, I I interpret this text as God the Spirit instructing Israel through Moses uh, for Israel to give two tithes in that text, Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 29. And so we started there and we unpacked that last Lord's Day. And I thought, well, to really get at this issue concerning Christian giving, because we spent the majority of our time last Lord's Day talking about how it is that God instructed Israel to give as they were entering the land of Canaan, for us to really bridge the gap and understand what it means for us to give as followers of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, I thought, well, why not add a part two? So we've done that. We've added a part two, and that is this morning, we're going to ask and answer the question broadly, how should Christians give? Or as the title demonstrates and betrays, what does it mean to give Christianly? There are ways to approach money that are distinctively Christian. And we're going to talk about some of those ways, in particular, the way to give. So as this is a larger exposition in the book of Deuteronomy, and this is a subset, I don't want to lose our moorings in that book of the Bible. And so if you're taking notes, here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask and answer two questions. The first question is going to be brief because it's review. The second question will be the majority of the sermon. So the first question we're going to ask and answer is how did God instruct Israel to give? That is review. We're not going to say anything new if you were with us last Lord's Day. If you were not with us last Lord's Day, then please get online and listen to that sermon because so much of what I'm going to say is predicated on what we talked about and unpacked last Lord's Day. So first, we're going to ask and answer the question, how did God instruct Israel to give? Secondly, And this is the majority of the sermon, so that's a hint as you're taking notes, right? Leave it just a small space for the first question. Leave a lot for the second question. The second question we're going to ask and answer this morning is how does God instruct us to give as Christians? How does he instruct us to give as Christians? And here I'm going to give you, you ready for this? Six ways. I heard you, Angie. I mean, that's serious. Two sermons in one. In one point. Yeah. God's grace is overflowing this morning. Okay? So six, six ways. And we'll do that together. Some of them will receive more attention than others. I wish I could tell you which ones. We'll see how this goes. But first, a little review. How did God instruct Israel to give? And we're going to run through this. You may recall, if you were with us last week, that the word tithe 
is a way of talking about a particular percentage of giving. There's a misunderstanding as it relates to the word tithe or tithing. Some people assume that tithing is synonymous with giving. It is not. In scripture, it is not. When the English translations translate a particular word or series of words with tithe or tithing, they are referring to a particular percentage. What is that percentage? It's 10%. 10%, one-tenth of something. And so if you received 10 of somethings, then you're going to give one away. That's tithing. That's what it means to give a tithe. Okay, that's important from the outset because if I'm misunderstood, I'm, I'm going to be found arguing that Christians shouldn't give. <laughs> and in fact, I'm arguing quite the opposite. I'm going to argue that it's above and beyond tithing on account of the gospel. But this is simply what the Hebrew and Greek words actually mean. In Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 29, we found two different tithes. Again, review, we found one tithe that we referred to as the festival tithe. And the festival tithe was given annually as a kind of national potluck. And I'm quoting John MacArthur there. As a kind of national potluck. And so once a year, Israel was to give a tithe or 10% in order to observe the festivals in the presence of God. And they would go and do this. They would travel to do this wherever the tabernacle or eventually the temple was located. And so, you know, what a gift of the Lord. They would tithe out of what they had received and then they were to partake of the tithe together in celebration and communion with the Lord. They benefited from the tithe directly. That's the festival tithe. But there was a second tithe we found in the text, and and the second tithe really begins either in verse 27 or verse 28 of Deuteronomy 14. And the second tithe we called the charity tithe. And the charity tithe was distinguished from the festival tithe in a number of ways, not the least of which was the charity tithe was given how often? Every three years. Every three years within the broader seven-year cycle, we didn't get into all those details. We'll get into the weeds there. If questions about that, holler at me later or call Pastor Tim. And he has the answers. That's what I do when I have questions. So every three years within the broader seven-year cycle, Israel was to store up, as it were, this charity tithe. And the charity tithe provided for those who were less fortunate according to material possessions in the camp of Israel. And it was taken up in all the towns. And so the poor and the orphans and the widows were cared for through the charity tithe. So those are the two tithes that we find in Deuteronomy 14. Well, that amounts to more than 10% because each one is 10%. One given every three years, one given every year. There's a third tithe that we introduced last Lord's Day. And this third tithe is found in in places like Leviticus 27 and Numbers 18. And this third tithe is oftentimes referred to as the Levitical tithe. I know a lot of detail here, but we're going to get somewhere together. The Levitical tithe, what does that mean? This was a tithe given annually, 10% every year, to provide for the Levites. Why? Because the Levites did not receive an inheritance in the land of Canaan. And so God was making provision for them as they lived in the land of Canaan. How were they to to make it? How were they to eat? Well, this was in part given as an act of God's kindness through the people of Israel for the tribe of Levi. And while there are disagreements how all of these tithes fit together, 
what we do know, we know a couple of things. One, ancient Judaism interpreted multiple tithes, more than one. We know this from a couple of sources, a few sources actually. And it's difficult to put it all together, but it does seem that tithing as an Israelite amounted to more than 10% because you didn't simply give a tithe, you gave tithes, plural. Understand that I am proposing this to you and there are good, faithful, godly, intelligent, wise brothers and sisters that disagree with me. That's okay. This is an intramural conversation in the body of Christ. And those are fun to have as long as they're rooted in scripture and we're all talking about how to read the word of God faithfully and how to apply it faithfully out of a deep love and passion to honor the Savior who purchased us. And that's what this is. That's precisely what this is. Well, the Old Testament was written for our instruction. Paul tells us that a couple of places. What we cannot do, and I, and I said this last week, in my opinion, and I think you run into an awful lot of trouble if you do this, we can't simply take an Old Testament instruction and transplant it into the New Covenant. That is to say, we shouldn't simply read a portion of the Old Testament and then say to the Christian, go and do likewise. It may end up being like that, but, but depending on how we answer a couple of questions actually determines how the instruction in the Old Testament gets applied to the life of the Christian. What I'm not saying, and this is important as we move forward together, and as I have the joy of being your pastor here in Powell, Tennessee at First Baptist, what I'm not saying is there is any portion of the Old Testament that is irrelevant. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. These things in the Old Testament were written down for our instruction, every bit of it. But there are a couple of questions we have to ask in order to correctly interpret and apply them. Here are the questions I mentioned last week. And again, we're still reviewing. The first question I asked was the question of purpose. And the second question I asked was the question of fulfillment. I know this may feel a bit heady, But let me get really practical. This is at the center of the debate concerning homosexuality. Today. Because in some of these texts where we would say, look here, the word of God here in the Old Testament says homosexuality dishonors the Lord. Within a matter of a few verses, those texts are talking about the clothing that you wear and the food that you eat. And so many have argued against evangelical Christianity by saying, well, you are arguing against homosexuality and yet you'll still wear clothing that is not 100% one fabric, which is contrary to transplanting this commandment from the Old Testament. Or you'll eat bacon, which if you just transplanted commandments from the Old Testament to our context, would you be eating bacon this morning, Christian? You would not. This really sits at the heart of so much confusion concerning how to read and interpret the Old Testament. Okay, so this is very practical. So the question of purpose is, is this question. And we're not gonna answer both of these this morning. Go back to last week's message and you'll get more of the answer. 
what was the purpose of this instruction in its immediate context? Always ask that question. That is, to whom was it written and when was it written and for what purpose in that context was it written? Deuteronomy 14 is written to second generation of Israelites as they're entering the land of Canaan. You are not a second generation Israelite entering the land of Canaan. Right? And so there's some gap there. Secondly, the question of fulfillment. And this, this becomes tricky at times. We all, always have to ask this question. How does the coming of Christ fulfill and potentially affect the application of this instruction? Notice I did not say make the instruction relevant. It's always relevant. How is it relevant for the Christian? So how does the coming of Jesus, his incarnation, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, how does the coming of Christ actually fulfill and potentially affect the application of this instruction? And what you'll find, even as a Christian, you'll find that there's this, there's this intuition within you when you read of passages like, do not commit adultery. Well, how does the coming of Christ alter that application? Not much, right? I'm gonna argue there's a hermeneutic taking place that you don't even, you're not even aware of, perhaps. You've got this intuition. You know that as you run that commandment, that instruction through the coming of Jesus Christ, Christ fulfills it, but it gets applied really in the same form to the life of the Christian. And yet, as it relates to eating bacon, glory to God, Christ comes, he fulfills, and then we find in the New Testament some things happening like, in my opinion, rise, kill, and eat. And so I can eat in good faith as a believer in Jesus Christ, bacon on the Lord's Day morning, and go gather for New Covenant worship. Right? Still relevant. Different application. As we do this, what I suggested last Lord's Day, as we do this, I concluded that God does not require, in my opinion, okay, I'm fallible. I concluded that God does not require Christians to give 10% of their income to the church in the same way or the same ways he required specific percentages of the Israelites in the Old Testament. That isn't to say you shouldn't give 10%. That isn't to say there's something wrong if you've determined a percentage of your income to give to the church and to give to the body of Christ. Praise the Lord for that. But I don't think the requirement is one-to-one from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Because I believe these tithes were inseparable from worship practices that were unique to Old Testament shadows that pointed to Jesus Christ. These tithes were tethered to and bound up within temple or tabernacle worship. They were tethered to and bound up to, bound up with rather the Levitical priesthood. The practice of priests offering sacrifices, animal sacrifices and grain offerings on the altar and so forth. They were bound up within and tethered to the observance of the annual festivals as the people of Israel were entering the land of Canaan. And all of these things, it's not that they're irrelevant, but all of them find their fulfillment in the personal work of Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter two. And then they get expressed in the life of the Christian in a way that is different 
than the expression you found in the life of the Old Testament Israelite. So, because Christ is our temple, and we said this last week, because Christ is our temple, because Christ is our priest, because Christ is our once and for all sacrifice, because we observe the festivals when we offer up our lives in obedience to Jesus Christ, we are no longer under obligation to keep these instructions in the same ways. The Old Testament saints kept these instructions, okay? That's the foundation upon which we're going to answer our second question. And by the way, everything we are talking about this morning, everything we talk about every Lord's Day, revolves around the person of Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of all of God's promises throughout Scripture. Everything we say is built upon that reality and that Comfort, and so if you have not yet come to trust in and surrender to Jesus Christ, everything I'm going to say from this point forward will be nonsense. And so I plead with you this morning, if you've not come to know the God who became human while remaining truly God in order to rescue you out of your sin, out of your condemnation, out of your emptiness, out of your brokenness, out of your separation from him. And he did this by, again, becoming truly human while remaining truly God and living in your place and dying in your place and for your sins and being buried and being raised in glorious power from the dead bodily on the third day. If you've not come to know this God and surrender to this God, then I plead with you this morning, don't leave here without doing that. Without embracing Christ with all that you are. Christ is our hope. Christ is our confidence. Christ is our message. Christ is the one we preach. And if that's where you are this morning and you've got questions about who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished, then stay after the service if you would please. And as you exit these doors and take a left, on your right-hand side out there, there's a room called the Crossroads. And there will be a pastor in there, probably Pastor Darren, who would love to visit with you and pray with you. And you can ask him all the tough questions you'd like. And hopefully you can come alongside of him and he alongside of you as you learn to worship and serve this risen Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's the foundation. Let's move on with the gospel as our foundation. How does God instruct us to give as Christians? This is the rest of our time together. And we're gonna try to do six. Six principles for giving. In this text, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul is instructing the Corinthian Christians to give for the relief of the saints, as he says in chapter 8, verse 4, and that is for the saints who are in Jerusalem. The Corinthian church, largely Gentile church, I love this, are given the opportunity to give to a largely Jewish church in Jerusalem. What a picture of the gospel. And this is the most sustained passage on giving in the New Testament. And I would submit to you, nowhere does it mention tithing. But I think what you'll find is what it does insist upon is giving that demands your soul, your life, your all. First, how should we give? We should give sacrificially. We find this in the text, sacrificially. Notice how the Christians residing in Macedonia gave in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and notice this as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Why is Christian giving sacrificial? Because our giving is motivated by the gospel. That's what's happening in the text. Christian giving is sacrificial giving. That means it hurts sometimes. It means when we say yes to giving, we are saying no to a whole host of other things. And you'll notice we're still in this text, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Look over at chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, that is those who will receive this and others, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission. Notice that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Why? Why do Christians give sacrificially? Because they believe and have come to know and treasure a God who gave sacrificially through Christ. It's the gospel that motivates our giving. And so that's why I said a moment ago, it's important that your relationship with God and Christ is right first. That's the foundation. Otherwise, this won't make any sense. Because when Jesus Christ, brother, sister, when he purchased you on the cross, he purchased your bank account. He purchased your retirement He purchased all of your efforts. He purchased your ambitions, your aspirations. He purchased your family. Every facet of your life belongs to God in Christ. And so you have the privilege of offering all of this back to him in service. Giving is one opportunity for doing that. Secondly, Secondly, not only should we give sacrificially, we should give proportionately. Proportionately. Now this probably goes without saying, but we cannot give what we do not have. And and Paul actually gets really practical on this point in the text. You can't give what you do not have. And and don't try to. Don't make the decision to give someone else's stuff away. Okay. Look down with me at 2 Corinthians 8, 13 and 14. And we're going to kind of jump around just a bit to isolate these principles. Paul writes, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. And then, of course, he goes on to talk about the manna in the wilderness. And the manna then being a picture of the way the church functions. Fascinating, isn't it? Every day there's enough for everyone. And God is doing that through those who are prospering more than others. And at times that gets inverted and those who once prospered more than others are not prospering and those who once didn't prosper are now prospering and it's important that the body of Christ is willing to give proportionately. 
Paul says something so practical here. He's not exhorting believers to give to the point at which they become a burden to brothers and sisters. Do you notice that? My intention is not for you to become a burden or be burdened by, but in, in your wealth, in your abundance, give it away. Give it away to these brothers and sisters who don't have an abundance. One warning I once heard years ago goes something like this. Give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. Hmm. I need to hear that as much as you do. Probably. There is one New Testament scholar. I want to get really practical here. One New Testament scholar, his name is Craig Blomberg. Pardon. And Craig taught at Denver. I think he's still at Denver Seminary. And he wrote a book called Neither Poverty Nor Riches. Wonderful book. And he takes, he takes the same position that I take on this issue. But if I can just be frank, he's more generous than I am. He suggests, and he's just suggesting this. This is just a, here, here's what I do. He suggests what he has called a graduated tithe. Graduated tithe, that's his language. And a graduated tithe works on the principle that the more money you make, the higher percentage you give. Now, what he's not saying is the more money you make, the more you give, though that is the case. But the more money you make, the higher percentage you give to others. So for example, if you make a combined $50,000 per year in your home, let's say you give 10% of your annual income, you then begin to make $75,000 per year, instead of really giving 10%, a graduated tithe commitment increases the percentage of giving to say 12%. So you may not, for example, just give $5,000 initially, the 10% of the 50,000, and then begin to make $75,000 and give 5,500, you see, or 7,500, but perhaps you want to increase your giving percentage-wise, to 12% or 13%. And that's what Blomberg suggests. And last I checked, and uh, I've heard wonderful things about this brother in this area, and the Lord uses him in so many ways. Last I checked, Blomberg gives somewhere around 40 to 50% of his annual earnings to the church and to others. Half his income. That convicts me. Is everybody required to do that? No, not necessarily, but I think as Christians, everyone is required to be willing to do that. Not only should we give sacrificially and proportionately, third, we should give voluntarily. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 5. Look down at the text with me. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead, ahead to you, rather, and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. Why? So that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Also, a couple verses later, Paul says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, God loves a cheerful giver. So when we give as Christians, on the one hand, look, we give because we are instructed to give? Well, yes. But on the other hand, what's happening in the gospel of Christ and the promise of the new covenant as the spirit of God takes up residence in us as believers in Jesus is our affections and our wills are being inclined and transformed to the glory of our Father. We're being changed, friends, from the inside out. 
And I've even experienced this over the last couple of weeks as I'm reviewing some of these things in the text. And there's an inclination of my heart, a longing to give more. Where's that from? Where's that come from? Not from mere obligation. It's more than that. It's, it's deeper than this. It's the work of the Spirit of God in me. It's God the Spirit taking the law of God and writing it on my heart in his mercy. And so we give because we are privileged to give as we have purposed in our hearts. And that's what the Apostle Paul is suggesting here. We should give voluntarily. Fourth, fourth way we should give as Christians. Cheerfully. We should give cheerfully. Notice Paul concludes, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. I just quoted it. I'll quote it again. For God loves a what? Cheerful giver. I can't help but mention this. I'm reminded of the story of a little girl, I heard this years ago, whose mother gave her a quarter and a dollar. And her mother instructed her that when the offering plate came by, she was to place in the offering plate whichever of the two she wanted to give to the Lord. The offering plate came by, and the little girl, as perhaps we would expect, placed the quarter in the plate and kept the dollar. When the mother inquired why she chose to give the quarter and not the dollar, the girl responded, well, I was about to give the dollar, but then the preacher said that I needed to give cheerfully, and I knew I could be much more cheerful if I gave the quarter. (laughs) We laugh because it resonates a little, doesn't it? Perhaps more than we would prefer. That's how many of us feel at times. I do. So how can we be motivated to give cheerfully? How does that work? How does it happen? How do we begin to experience the liberation and the freedom of giving? And not just giving out of obligation, but giving voluntarily and giving with joy, giving cheerfully. One of the ways is by realizing that when we give, we are actively participating in the gospel of grace. Let me say that again, because that's what Paul goes to in the text, and we're going to look at this. We are actively participating in the gospel of grace when we give to others. Notice how Paul speaks about giving in the text. Look at chapter 8, verse 6. If you underline or you highlight in your Bibles, this will be a good time to do that. If you don't, that's okay. Just take notes. Chapter 8, verse 6, accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you, notice, this act of what? Grace. Chapter 8, verse 7, part B. Second part of verse 7, see that you excel in this act of what? Grace. See that? Chapter 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Giving is described by the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul in this text in terms of God's grace in Christ, don't miss this, through us. You hear that, Christian? Christian. 
When you give to the church and when you give to those in need, what's happening? God is giving in Christ through you. You have the privilege of being, as it were, a conduit of God's mercy. And that becomes incredibly appealing when you are a recipient of God's mercy. One who has benefited eternally because of God's grace and mercy. And this is perhaps one of the reasons, by the way, Jesus once said, and he's quoted by the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, verse 35, recorded by Luke. A lot of steps there. He's quoted as saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You receive a greater blessing when you give than when you actually immediately receive something. Because you're a conduit of God's grace and mercy. And that builds you up. That empowers you to boast all the more in the grace of God and Christ. And how you've had the privilege of being a minister of that grace. Whether others know it or not. I could just be frank here and I can say this because they're anonymous. I mean, there are people in this church. People in this church who give anonymously. I get the privilege of seeing that happen. You know, being a pastor comes with challenges. But it comes with eternal privileges. I get the joy of seeing the body of Christ be the body of Christ in ways that maybe some of you don't. And there are some of you who give anonymously, who who say, look, I'm gonna give you this, pastor, and I want you to pass this along to someone in need, but do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Make sure they know from whom this has come, and it's not me. I'm an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer, and I get the privilege when I hand someone something to say, by the way, this didn't come from me. It came from Christ through another brother or sister in my church, and it's to you. Give glory to God, I can say to them. That's Christian giving. And your reward will be great in heaven, as Christ promised. Fifth, we have two more. And Dan, we're going to make it. Fifth, we should give expectantly. We should give expectantly. Look with me at chapter 9. Verses six through eight, and then we'll look at verse 10. Paul writes, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Verse seven, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make, notice, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then skip to verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What is Paul saying? 
He's saying that there is a direct and perhaps even causal relationship between what you sow and what you reap. Now, where do you get this? Well, this is just common farming, agricultural imagery. Friends of mine are farmers in central Texas, and they've not yet enjoyed a crop without plowing and planting. Not once. They can only get out of the soil what they put into the soil. And so that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is just piggybacking on this imagery. What you give is related to what you receive. But this passage has been terribly abused in the hands of prosperity preachers who contend that if you will simply sow a seed of faith, $100, God will give you 1000 and And look, I've always wondered, as so many others have wondered, if that's the case, why aren't they just continually sowing all their money? Preacher, if that's the case, if, if, if I give a hundred and, and God promises to give a thousand, then why aren't you giving it all in service to this ministry? Why even take a check, right? Just give it all away. Well, these are, these are crooks. And there are some who are deceived who authentically believe God's word teaches this. There are some who actually believe that when you give away material blessings, God promises material blessings in return in this life. But there are some also who are distorting the word of God intentionally for personal gain. And don't fall prey to this garbage. By the way, this kind of gospel, that that is the prosperity gospel, this kind of gospel could never really flourish during portions of church history. When being a Christian means you die, the prosperity gospel dies. And so this kind of thing can only take root in a place like America and then be shipped out to other unsuspecting nations. Well, a couple of things here, why this is wrong and how we should understand the Apostle Paul. As I mentioned, Paul is simply using farming imagery. The general rule is that you only get out of the soil what you put into the soil. And this sowing and reaping principle is actually woven throughout the rest of Scripture. So, for example, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived that which a man sows he will also reap. Just common understanding there. And there he's not talking about money at all. There he's talking about obedience. But I want you to notice that God is not promising an abundance of material wealth in the text. Look again at verse 8. What is God promising in the text? Verse 8 God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every what? Good work. God is promising sanctification in the text. God's promising that you're going to grow in Christ's likeness as you give of material possessions. That's the promise. He's not promising temporary material wealth. He's promising eternal wealth in Christ and growth in Christ's likeness in the text. He goes on to speak Again, look down at the text with me. He goes on to speak in verse 10 about a harvest of righteousness. You see that? 
harvest of your righteousness. And the point is not giving money to receive more money, but giving as an act of sacrifice in this life for others in order that God may contribute to the increase of your obedience to him for his glory until that great and glorious day known as the harvest. When, according to Jesus, does the harvest take place? When Christ returns. Matthew 13, verse 39, Christ says the harvest is the end of the age. And so I take it when the Apostle Paul here makes a promise concerning the harvest of your righteousness, he's making a promise about prosperity that is eternal and received when Jesus Christ returns. That's the promise. Look, you may give until you're impoverished in this life. But such sacrificial, expectant giving carries with it a promise that a life is coming and a day is coming, coming when God continues to have increased your righteousness and your obedience and your Christ-likeness in such a way that you see Jesus and you're finally like him and you receive the eternal inheritance he's secured for you by means of his death and resurrection. That's the promise of prosperity. So the prosperity gospel short sells us. They promise a car. Christ promises an inheritance that is imperishable and eternal. In addition to giving sacrificially, proportionately, voluntarily, cheerfully, and expectantly, finally, I want to make note of this before we wrap up. We should give worshipfully. We should give worshipfully. Look finally at chapter 9, verses 12 through 15, church. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. You're doing that, okay? When you give to the church, you're supplying needs. You're supplying a blessing for your pastors. You're supplying a blessing even for the nation, so on and so forth. The Lottie Moon Christmas offering, right? That's precisely why we give to see the gospel go to the nations. But it's more than that. The gospel going to the nations is not the end in itself. The gospel going to the nations is the means. As he says here, again, go back, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And notice how Paul concludes this section on Christian giving. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. That's what this is all about. We give to keep the lights on. That's important. If you want to see. We give to take care of our pastors and other staff members. 
I, for one, am grateful for that. We give to care for the poor. We give to take the gospel to the nations. But we finally give. We give ultimately to increase thanksgiving to God. That's how we give. We give for the glory and honor of our great God who has first given to us. That's our telos. That's our goal. Meet a need, yes. But through meeting that need, bring glory to God. Bless another, yes. But through blessing another, increase thanksgiving in their heart for the glory of God. Extend the gospel to the nations or extend the gospel here to Powell, Tennessee? Absolutely. But in so doing, increasing thanksgiving in the hearts of others for the glory of God. That's what it's all about. So that one day we bow before our great and glorious God through Christ in worship alongside of others who have given to us and to whom we have had the privilege to give. And we'll spend eternity doing precisely what it is God intended us to do, glorifying and enjoying God. For how long, church? Forever. John Wesley was exemplary in the area of giving. And so I mentioned him to you as we wrap up. He eventually lived on 28 pounds a year he decided this early on in his ministry. Early on in his ministry, he made 28 pounds and lived on that and, and he decided to cap it. He was gonna live on 28 pounds no more. And uh, he continued to live on 28 pounds. And as his pay increased, eventually, the story is told and I've found various details. I'm no Wesleyan scholar. Eventually, the story is told that he lived on 28 pounds a year and he gave away 92 pounds every year. That's over 80% of his income. I think that's, that's getting close to Christian giving. Not all of us can do that today. But a worthwhile ambition, I think, church, for all of us. In his sermon on Luke 16, 8 through 13, John Wesley offered three rules of Christian prudence as it related to the use of money. And his points were very simple. Preached a three-point sermon because he's a Trinitarian, right? Number one, he said, gain all you can. I mean, if it's out there, it might as well be in the hands of followers of Jesus. Two, save all you can. There's prudence and recognizing that instead of spending it as we get it, we should be saving it. And three, he concluded his sermon with this, give all you can. Well, it's to that end, we should pray together that God would work in us to have a heart that is similar to John Wesley's, a heart that is motivated by what God has given to us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the privilege of walking through your word and, and seeking the ways in which you've called us to bring glory to your name in the act of giving. Father, I pray personally you would continue to conform me to the image of Christ. May it be that the gospel motivates me more and more and more to give
and to be a blessing to others and an instrument of grace. Finally and fully for the glory of your name. We pray these things because you have first given to us in Christ and all God's people said, amen.